When I was in fifth grade, we had to do a book report, and we had to pair up, and so I got to pair up with my crush, Becky. It was a big deal. And we decided to do a book report on a book about mummification, uh, which is you know, part of the ancient Egyptian afterlife rituals. And so we actually acted out a mummification, uh, obviously faked it, we used uh, different foodstuffs to represent the organs and all of that, because when, when Egyptians would mummify someone, uh, they would actually uh, you know, cut open their body, remove their organs, and put those in separate sealed jars, and it was a, it was a process of preserving the body uh, because of how the Egyptians viewed the afterlife. And this is neither here nor there, but we did get an A triple plus on the book report, and Becky still was not interested in me. So uh, kind of a win-lose there, right? But uh, overall, uh, I, I just remember as a kid being fascinated by all of these things that the Egyptian culture did because of their views of the afterlife, right? Because they believed that you could take everything with you when you died. And so they worked really hard to amass power, to amass wealth, and they put it all in these huge tombs that were just packed with in, like almost unimaginable riches because they believed that after they died, they would be, uh, their bodies would be able to live on and they would be able to keep all of this stuff. Now, we know that that's not true, right? We know that they didn't come back, Tom Cruise reboot movies aside, right? Um, we, know that, we know that they don't live on, and we know that, in fact, all of that fabulous wealth that they collected and locked away in these pyramids were actually just robbed throughout the centuries by grave robbers. So that now, uh, archaeologists have only found like one or two tombs that actually still have anything in them. So we know, that, we know that this picture that they had of the afterlife didn't actually carry them through to the afterlife. And that's unfortunate because the Egyptian culture was actually very unjust because of their beliefs, because of the fact that they thought that whoever had the most power and the most wealth would have the most in the afterlife. They created an entire system that was like a pyramid of oppression where a few people at the top had all of the power and all of the authority and everyone who lived below them suffered greatly because of the way their society was set up, and their society was set up because of their view of the afterlife. Their view of the afterlife shaped their life, okay? So that's what we're going we're gonna to talk today about our view of the afterlife. What do we believe happens after we die, and how does that belief shape how we live today? Now, uh, as we're beginning, you know, if you asked a kind of polled most people in our country, and people do this so we can actually look at data, right? We know that most people in our country sort of have a view of the afterlife that's something like, if you're good, then you'll go to heaven when you die, right? You'll leave your body behind and your spirit will float up into the sky somewhere and you'll live forever uh, with God. And one day, God's actually going to come back and take everyone else away that was good and everyone's going to kind of go off and live up somewhere up there. We're not exactly sure where, right? But somewhere up there. Now, that's not actually what the Bible says about what happens when we die. And that's what we're going to talk about today is, what the Bible actually says, and what the Bible actually says, just to give you a sneak preview, is that we will one day be raised, and the bodies that we have now will be resurrected, and we will live in our bodies forever with God on this earth. Okay? And if we can understand that belief, if we can allow that belief to begin to shape us, it actually changes how we live our lives in the here and now. Our view of the afterlife shapes our lives now. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And what we're ultimately going to be celebrating is the fact that uh, we believe that in the end, God wins. And that sin and death and evil and pain, they don't get even a little bit of the pie. That, that at the end, in the end, 
God wins, love wins, and we get to rule forever with God in a world that is free of death, sin, pain, and evil. And that is good news. That's something that is worth celebrating. So we're going to begin together today by singing and by celebrating this God who is faithful and who will be victorious. So would you stand and sing with us? Uh, We are in a series, we're actually towards the end of it, this week and next week at the end of this series, uh, where we've been working through the Apostles' Creed. We started at the beginning of the summer, and, and we've been just sort of working through one statement at a time. I believe this, I believe that. And, what, and we're asking, what does it mean to say that we believe these things? And we're doing that because the Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest statements about what Christians believe, what the beliefs are that make us a church. And so uh, we've been approaching belief kind of backwards from the way we usually approach it. Usually, beliefs uh, feel sort of like a final exam, like you have to check all these boxes before you're allowed to participate in, in what we do here. And the way we're approaching belief instead is we're putting these ahead of us. We're saying that when we say we believe uh, in God the Father, the uh, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, for instance, we're not, we're not saying that we have to understand completely what that means before we're allowed to participate at Catalyst. Uh, we're saying that For 2,000 years, Christians have found that statement to somehow point us to the life and flourishing that God has for us. And so we we sort of lean into it. We put it ahead of us as a goal, and we say this is something that we move towards and aspire to. Uh, So we began our series talking about what it means to say that God is the creator what it means that we're all created for a purpose. We spent several weeks talking about Jesus, everything from what it means to say that we believe Jesus is God to what it means to say that Jesus became human to what it means to say that we believe Jesus died and was raised from the dead, and what it, even what it means to believe that Jesus will come again, which we're going to kind of overlap with a little bit today. And then we've been, uh, in the end, we've been talking about what it means to say that we believe in the Holy Spirit. And we've been specifically focusing the last couple of weeks on what the Holy Spirit does, what it means to say that we believe the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us the church. And then last week, Tommy talked to us about what it means to say that we believe that it is through the Spirit's power that we are able to forgive sin and to be a community of forgivers. So this week, we're going to talk about what it means to say that we believe uh, the Spirit will raise us in the end. So we're gonna, we're going to, today we're going to talk about the statement, I believe in the resurrection of the body. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Now, we're not talking about Jesus' resurrection, right? We actually already covered that when we said, I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, right? So, so we do believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but this is not that. This is something different. You'll notice that it's not with the stuff about Jesus. It's with the stuff about the church. I believe in one holy Catholic universal church. I believe in the forgiveness of sin. I believe in the resurrection of the body. We, we are saying when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body, that we believe that in the end, we, our bodies, will be raised from the dead. Now, this is something that I think we struggle to get our minds around, how this works, because we have sort of a disconnect when we think about Jesus and we think about us. Most of us have no problem uh, believing that Jesus' body was raised from the dead, that when he walked out of the tomb, he wasn't a ghost or a spirit or something like that, that, that he was a body, that he ate things, that he touched people, other people, you know, people touched him. Like, we, we get that, that Jesus' body was raised and, and walked out of the tomb. But then somehow when we think about our own afterlife— we tend to think more of ourselves as, again, these sort of disembodied spirits, that after we die, we're going to leave our bodies behind, and we won't have them anymore, that they're temporary. Which is, 
it's interesting when you think about it that way. The, 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 our picture of what happened to Jesus after he died doesn't match with our picture of what we think of is going to happen to ourselves after we die. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, if you grab one of the free Bibles out of the back, you can find 1 Corinthians 15 on page 692. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that one. We'd love for you to consider it a gift from us. Now, as you're turning there, this, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who is one of the first Christians, to the city of Corinth, to a church that he planted there. And the Corinthian church, uh, it, was, it was a mess. If you, ever, if you ever hang out with a bunch of pastors, which I assume probably most of you don't do that as much as I do, but uh, if, if pastors are ever complaining about their churches, uh, you'll often hear, well, just go read 1 Corinthians, because I promise you, like, no matter how crazy your church is, it doesn't hold a candle to what was going on in Corinth. Okay, so they had a lot of problems. There were divisions, there was a lot of infighting, there was a lot of uh, like social inequality and injustice kind of stuff. And Paul, the guy who wrote the letter, by, so you'll notice we're at 15, we're pretty close to the end of the letter, right? He has, been, he has been sort of like addressing all of these problems, like working through, okay, let's talk about this problem. Okay, let's talk about this problem. Okay, let's talk about this problem. And by the time you get to the end of 1 Corinthians 15, he grounds all of these problems in the fact that they don't have a good picture of the end. They have a wrong picture of the afterlife, and it's causing problems in their life, right? And so Paul specifically writes to them and tries to correct their vision of the afterlife. And they're, see, they were Greeks. Corinth was a Greek city. Uh, if you ever, I don't know, if you ever saw like Gladiator or something like that, right? You kind of know the Greek afterlife was like, there's no resurrection. Your spirit just goes and lives in the land of the dead. Right? There's no body, there's no resurrection. So a lot of the Greeks, they, just, they didn't believe in bodily resurrection. And that was actually causing problems. The fact that they did not believe that in the end, their bodies would be raised from the dead was causing problems in their everyday life in their church. Their picture of the afterlife was causing problems in their life. And so I want to read to you what Paul does here to correct them. And you'll notice that he links what happened in Jesus' afterlife to what happens in ours in the end. So let's read beginning in verse 12. Paul says, tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there's no resurrection of the dead, right? Paul's like, look, when we came, the whole thing was Jesus was raised, God raised Jesus from the dead, right? And yet some of you are saying there's no resurrection. How could that be? Because we came here and told you that God raised Jesus from the dead, right? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless, and we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be if there's no resurrection from the dead. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, then we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So Paul very intentionally links what happened to Jesus with what's going to happen to us. And for Paul, the, the, the very fact that Jesus' body came back to life and walked out of the grave is proof that that's what's going to happen to us in the end. He calls Jesus uh, a first fruits of a great harvest. This is an agriculture term, so some of you more farming types in here will resonate with it, right? But the first fruits are the first crops to ripen. 
And if you get your, if you, so if, you know, if you're an apple farmer or whatever, a big apple orchard, and you pull the first few apples off, those are your first fruits, and the quality of those apples are an indicator of what the rest of your harvest is going to look like. Right? They're like a kind of a sneak peek. And so Paul says Jesus is the first fruits of this great harvest that God is planting. Right? Jesus is first, and we are the rest of humanity. We're the rest of that harvest. Right? Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection are not two separate events. Jesus' afterlife and our afterlife are not two disconnected things. They're one big thing. If you were here when Sue preached on what it means to say that we believe Jesus was raised from the dead, she talked about that already not yet kind of a kingdom, and that's what this is. It's that what happened to Jesus and what, hap- what will happen to us are all one big thing. They're all one part of God's plan for the end. Our bodies will be raised just like Jesus' body was raised. And Paul is, Paul is so adamant about this, right? I mean, it would be easy for Paul to shrug his shoulders and say, you know, uh, what happens after you die? It's kind of one of those gray areas. No one really knows, and so we can't be sure. Let's just agree to disagree and you know, try not to let it cause too many problems. But Paul doesn't do that. He does that with other stuff. But he draws a hard line here with Jesus' bodily resurrection, with our bodily resurrection. This is not something Paul's willing to let slide. This is not something Paul's willing to agree to disagree about. Paul says that actually all of the problems that are facing the Corinthian church are problems because they do not have a right understanding of what our bodies are and what's going to happen to our bodies. A bad picture of the afterlife causes problems in the Corinthians' life and it causes problems in our life. Christians, in general, don't have a good view of the afterlife. Again, we think that our bodies are just going to be left behind and we're going to you know, be these disembodied spirits. And that causes problems. When I grew up, uh, when we talked about Christian mission work, growing up in the church, there, were a, there was a, n- a big number of people that said, when you go to do compassionate work of any kind uh, among uh, populations where they don't have food and water and they're diseased and stuff like that, they said, don't worry about all that stuff. All you need to worry about is sharing the gospel with them. Get them saved. Because it doesn't matter if they die tomorrow. They'll go to heaven. So don't waste your time, heard that kind of stuff. Don't waste your time feeding people, giving them something to drink, making sure that their conditions are more just. It's a waste of time because our bodies don't matter. There's a problem with that. But it comes from the fact that we don't value our bodies correctly. Right? Uh, when, we talk about, when we talk about our bodies mattering, uh, it's hard for us, I think, to, to talk about uh, even something like caring for the earth. Because, again, if our bodies and the earth are just going to pass away, we don't understand why, why they should matter, right? Uh, again, I've heard some Christian preachers say, uh, I drive the biggest gas-guzzling SUV I can find because God's going to burn it all anyway. Now, I'm not trying to get into a debate about cars. But I do find it interesting that his justification for his choice was that None of this is going to be around anyway, so it doesn't matter how we treat it. That's interesting. Uh, It's hard for us, I think, as a church to talk about race relations because if we think our bodies don't matter, then uh, it's easy to sort of like pretend race is something that's not important because it's not who we really are. Inside, we're all the same color or something like that, right? If If our bodies don't matter. And yet again and again and again in Scripture, we see our bodies do matter, and our bodies are part of God's design and part of God's plan. And so, 
What happens if we try to take that seriously? What happens if we let our view of the afterlife shape our view of life? Well, I want to show you, uh, at the end of Scripture, a view of the afterlife. This is, this is sort of when everything comes together, when Jesus returns and God puts everything the way it was to be. This is in Revelation chapter 21. Uh, you can go ahead and turn there again if you grab one of the free Bibles out of the back. This is page 758. Now, as you're turning to Revelation 21, I just want you to pause with me for a moment and think about the story that a lot of us sort of probably learned growing up, which is, again, that the afterlife is that God takes us all away from the earth because the earth is broken and our bodies are broken and it's all sin and death and, and, and God takes us all to heaven to live somewhere else. Here's why that's a bad story. Because we confess God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, right? That means that this world belongs to God. It means God has intentions for this world. If you were here when we started this series, you know that's what we talked about, right? That there's a purpose and a mission and a logic behind it. It's not accidental, it's not incidental, it's something that God intended for us to have. And so to tell a story that begins with God creating this beautiful place so that God could live with us there, and then the story ends with God going, well, I guess that didn't work, we'll try something else. That's not a very good story. It means that sin and death win, and God has to go try plan B somewhere else, because at the end of the day, God wasn't smart enough, strong enough, capable enough, I guess, to, to finish what he started. That, that's terrible. If you saw a movie that ended like that, you would walk out being like, well, that was stupid. Can't believe I just wasted money on that. Right? We know, we know in our hearts that, that that's not how we want the story to end, right? And fortunately, Scripture tells us that's not how the story ends. The story does not end with God abandoning plan A and starting plan B somewhere else up in the clouds. Let's read together in Revelation 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. The revelator tells us that I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. We're going to come back to that word disappeared in a moment. The sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people because it came down out of heaven to the earth, right? He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things will be gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy true and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. And all who are victorious will inherit these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Now, a couple of notes. This word disappeared thing, as I said, the, the, the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, right? And that sort of sounds like, wait, I thought you said God wasn't destroying everything, but that sure sounds like they're destroyed. Well, that word disappeared, if you look at it in the Greek, you can kind of trace it through the New Testament. It actually has the sense of, uh, like, go on. Like, it'll say Jesus went on his way, or someone went on their way, it passed on, it passed away. And strangely, it also gets used of healing, when someone has a demon cast out of them, or someone is healed, it says that the disease or the demon had gone on. It passed on. 
So the sense here of the new, the old heaven and the old earth having gone on, it's that idea of the sin, the death, the pain that characterized that. And when it says that there was a new heaven and a new earth, this is in the sense of having been healed. So you know whenever you've been like really sick and you have finally that moment where, it's not a moment, it's usually like a nine-hour coma, where you sleep and sleep and sleep and the fever breaks and you sweat it all out and then you wake up and you feel so good that you spring out of bed and what do you say? You say, I feel like a new person. Because all of that junk that was inside of you has passed on. That's the sense that Revelation 21 gives us here. When John sees this new heaven and this new earth because the old, all of the evil, the sin, the death, the pain, they're gone. And what we see here is that God has returned to take back the earth. And God has restored that which was broken. And God has reclaimed that which was his from the beginning. And God has resurrected all those who are his children. And in the end, we don't live somewhere up in the clouds as spirits with God. We live with God on God's earth as God's people in bodies that God raised back to life. That's the story that ought to shape our lives. That's what's ahead of us. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be a church that believes in the resurrection of the body? Well, it means a lot of things, but I think one thing it means is that if we believe that God is going to raise our bodies, then we learn to love our bodies. And that is difficult in a culture that is always telling us that our bodies are the wrong shape or the wrong size or the wrong color, right? Our culture makes it difficult to love our bodies. It does. But if we are to be a church that says we believe in the resurrection of the body, then that means we learn to love our bodies, it means that we learn to care for each other's bodies, right? Not just our spiritual needs, but our physical needs too. It means that we uh, care for the sick among us. It means that we are present with those who are suffering. And, and I have to say, this is one area, this is an area I think where Catalyst excels. You are so good at caring for each other, particularly in times of pain, in times of crisis, so good at providing meals, providing presence, providing prayer. This is an area where I think we are, we are excelling, excelling as a church. What does it mean to say that we believe in the resurrection of the body? Again, particularly for our time and place, I think it means that we take racial justice seriously because diversity was God's idea. And if we believe in the resurrection of the body, if we believe that these bodies that we're in now will be in heaven, that means heaven's going to be a very diverse place. And we might as well go ahead and get good at it now because we're going to be getting good at it for eternity. Another thing that it means, if we believe that our bodies will be raised and we extend that to understand that the, the earth that we have been given will be in some way resurrected and restored, it does also mean that we take uh, care of the earth seriously. Now, I'm going to stop. This is not a political issue. I mean, it has been politicized, but here it is not a political issue because long before there was ever such a thing as a Democrat or a Republican, God created a man and a woman and put them on the earth and said, be fruitful and multiply and rule over the earth. Caring for the earth is not a political issue for the church. It should not matter which side of whatever party lines or whatever you're on. This was our first job 
This was our first calling, was to care for the earth. And, and caring for the earth, is, again, all of these issues are complicated. That, that has implications for what we eat. It has implications for what we throw away and everything in between. But if we are serious that our bodies are good gifts from God, the earth is a good gift from God, and they're all going to last forever, then I think we have to take these things seriously. Now, here's my caveat. All of the things that I mentioned are difficult, complicated issues that cannot be solved in a 25-minute sermon. Okay? But that is precisely why the church needs to be talking about these things. I think too often, we want to say, let's just focus on Jesus as though somehow Jesus doesn't care about all of that stuff. And we let the world have those conversations that the church ought to be leading. We ought to be better than anyone at loving our bodies because we believe God gave us our bodies. We ought to be better than anyone at caring for one another because we believe that God gave us one another to care for. We ought to be better than anybody at racial justice because, again, we know what the end looks like and that should shape how we live now. We should be better than anyone at caring for the earth because that is literally the first job we ever had. We should be good at these things. And we're not, I think, in part because we've let a false picture of the afterlife shape our lives. This idea that in the end, God's going to destroy it all and we're going to be disembodied spirits floating on clouds. But that's not true. There's nowhere in the Bible that, that says that. And so if we could take seriously this vision of the afterlife that God gives us, that is us in resurrected bodies living together with God, I think it would change how we treat each other and how we treat ourselves and how we treat the world. And I would love to be a church that is good at having these difficult conversations. I think we're, I think we're further along the way than a lot of places. And I believe, I believe Catalyst can be that kind of a church. Because I know you. I know your heart. I know how much you care for one another. And I believe we can be that place. I think to do that, we just got to keep doing what we're doing. Keep following God. Keep doing the next right thing. Taking the next right step. And not being afraid of these conversations because we know that they're God-oriented conversations. That Jesus cares about all of this stuff. Jesus cares about your bodies. And we don't have to be afraid in this place of talking with each other about those things, of trying to figure out what the good, right, holy thing to do is. Because we believe in the resurrection of the body. It matters and it shapes us. We're going to approach the communion table together. Because when Jesus was about to be crucified. And he had a chance to leave us with one thing that he knew we would remember. He didn't give us a Bible verse to memorize because we're not just minds. Right? He gave us a meal to share together, an embodied ritual. You can't eat a meal without a body. And so we come to the table today as bodies called together into Christ's body, knowing that we will be eternal because Christ was raised eternal. And so we approach the table that invites us to share that meal that he shared with his followers the night before he was killed. When he broke bread and he said, this is my body. 
take it. Eat it. When he passed around a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Take it and drink it. Jesus never intended the life that he offers us to be disconnected from our bodies. And so we approach today as people with messy bodies, bodies that are never quite the right size, shape, whatever, right? Bodies that never quite act the way we want them to, especially as we get older. And we approach as a people who frankly maybe aren't very good at having these difficult conversations, at, at living in our bodies well, because we haven't, we haven't been taught to. But we come to Christ's table to receive with our bodies a meal. We come as a sign of hope, as a sign of faith that God is with us. And we receive wafers and juice, affirmations of our bodies, and we leave from here and go back into a world that needs to hear the good news that we are eternal, that our bodies will live forever. And so, as we approach today, the first thing we're going to do is say the creed together. We've done this every week of this series. And again, I would just encourage you to remember that, that we place the creed in front of us as something to aspire to. And I think particularly, at least for me, this week is, the mo- is one of the most challenging for me. This is the one where I look at my own life and I say, I don't think I do a good job of really living out believing that I, that in the resurrection of the body. Right? But I put it ahead of me and I say, I know that this is something that the church has declared to be true and that this is a way that we have found life. And so I say this as an act of faith. And I invite you to say it in the same way, not as a checklist of beliefs, but as an act of faithfulness, saying that this is where God is calling us. And after we've said the creed together, I'm going to pray for us. And then after, uh, after I've prayed, as you're ready, you're welcome to come forward and receive communion. So would you stand with me? Say the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together. God, it is difficult, I think, for us to accept the fact that you have called us to live in these bodies. There's so much of our embodied existence that we would change if we could. Our height, our weight, our size, our color, on and on and on. And yet you have declared for us that our bodies are good gifts from you, uh, that you will raise them on the last day, that they were not an afterthought 
or an oversight, that in fact, living in physical bodies in a physical world with you was the plan from day one. Thank you for not abandoning this world. Thank you for not abandoning us to our sinfulness. Thank you for becoming a body yourself, for taking all of our pain and anguish, allowing yourself to be killed, and then being raised from the dead that we might know what is ahead of us. We ask that this vision of the afterlife, this new world with new bodies, that it would, that it would challenge how we live today that we would be able to see uh, what it means to say that our bodies are forever, that this world is forever. We approach your table today uh, in, in kind of a swirl, not knowing exactly what to do next. But we receive from you these wafers and this juice, and we ask that they become a spiritual food. We ask, even as we receive them with our bodies, that you would inspire us to see what our next right step is, what the next thing we need to do or the next conversation we need to have. Because we want to be a church that affirms that our bodies are forever and that this world is forever and that all of them are good gifts from you. We want the people that we see in the world to know that and, and to, to, to know that they are loved and that they are eternal because they have met us and because we know you. And so we approach your table this morning and we offer these prayers in the resurrected and eternal name of your son, Jesus. Uh, I think learning to live in our bodies can be difficult. And, and one, way, uh, one way that we can learn to listen for God and learn to sort of sit with God in our bodies is through the practice of silence. And this is something that's very difficult for us because it, it means even your phone has to be off or away or something like that, uh, so that notifications don't don't trick you, right? Um, but I would I want to just challenge you this week, particularly if this message uh, was something that's challenging for you, uh, to spend a few days, take a, take two or three or four days this week, and block out ten minutes, and just sit in silence. Okay, now I know that that is very challenging. Right? But, but silence is a way that we can just sort of clear our minds and our hearts and have no agenda and just begin to listen for God and to be present in our bodies and just begin to, to let God speak to us. And I say 10 minutes because some of you are thinking, I'll just do five minutes, right? Five minutes is like, it takes five minutes just to kind of start to decompress from everything that's going on up here, right? So really, if you're going to do this, do it for 10 minutes. Um, you will be amazed at the things that God begins to speak to you and the way you begin to see the world differently. Um, when we take seriously the fact that, that these things that we have, that we live in the world with our bodies, are not accidents. Uh, they're God's plan for us, and they're, they're going to be forever. So, Catalyst, as you go today, would you go as a beautiful body of people? I mean, I wish you could see from up here. Beautiful group of people who has so much to offer the world, both now and in the world to come. So would you go and love the world and love the bodies in the world and love your own bodies such that people believe the hope that we have that our bodies will be raised from the dead and we will live and rule with Christ now and forever. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we'll see you next week.